Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. good news story to lead off this hour. Mickey Nelson was born in Clarks Grove, Minnesota, a hundred years ago. June the 27th was his uh, hundredth birthday. And uh, on August the 5th, just three blocks from the house where he was born and the house he still lives in, uh, in front of what is his church in Clarks Grove, he completed a hundred mile walk. He's 100 years old. He completed a 100-mile walk uh, to raise needed funds for COVID-19 food programs in the area. He was joined by more than 100 people in the final stretch to the finish line. And about his uh, effort, this veteran of World War II um, said, I grew up during the Great Depression living on a farm. We always had enough to eat. But I remember how people who were struggling were lined up in bread lines. And with coronavirus, I'm seeing so many people laid off from their jobs, and I thought uh, there must be something I could do. And so he started a 100-mile trek. He started back in May. He was thinking he might raise, you know, $5,000 for his local Salvation Army feeding programs. But as of today, Nelson's efforts have garnered nearly $100,000. You can read the whole story um, in all kinds of places today. Uh, But we just want to say hats off to... um, to this fine man and this wonderful example. It reminded me of Jesus's admonition in Matthew chapter 5. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. And so if you wanted to read uh, the context of this conversation, it's Matthew 5, 38 to 48. And there's, um, uh, there's all kinds of important instruction in here about turning the other cheek or not just giving your shirt, but also your coat. Um, But I want to talk specifically about verse 41. If anybody forces you to go one mile, that's the the legalism mile, that's the mile the law requires, um, then go with them two miles. That's uh, the smile mile. That's the mile of love. That's the mile love goes. So the first mile that Jesus is referring to there was the Roman mile. And that Roman mile was designed to humiliate those who were subjugated under Roman rule. They could force anyone to drop what they were doing and pick up whatever the Romans said they needed to pick up and carry it one mile. And so you were forced by law to do that under Roman rule. What Jesus is saying is, go on and voluntarily go a second mile. Why is that? Well, because it restores your dignity. Uh, It it is an acknowledgement that you um, not only have the power to make a decision, but you have the power uh, to joyfully and willingly serve the second mile can then become the smile mile. It's a good reminder that you and I as Christians go beyond what legalists require. Um, And um, it's also uh, gives us a perspective on the first mile, right? If I know during the entire first mile that I am going to go a voluntary second mile, it changes my perspective on that first mile. Because that first mile, man, it could be hellish or it could be at a minimum human. But to make it heavenly, like to make it a 
uh, evidence of a kingdom reality, then um, then I need to go ahead and have the second mile in my mind as I'm walking the first mile. So the first mile may be required by the law, but the second mile is required as an act of love. And so let me encourage you to go the second mile today as a demonstration of the gospel. Jesus certainly went the second mile for each and every one of us. Up next, Justin Gibney from the AND Campaign. He and I are going to talk about uh, a piece by Tim Keller, the biblical critique of secular justice and critical theory. We're also going to talk again about the Democratic National Convention platform. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Justin Gibney, he works with a group called the And Campaign, really seeking to uh, draw people into the conversation from across what we might traditionally think about uh, as strict lines of division. And instead, we're going to be people who talk across those lines of historic division and learn how to talk with one another towards solutions um, that actually work for each of us and all of us uh, as a as a society seeking to live together. Um, Justin, welcome back. Um, and let's uh, let's lead off with this piece by um, uh, I, I would call him Pastor Tim Keller, although he's now retired from pastoral ministry, but still definitely a leading voice um, uh, among a large swath of reformed Christians in the United States of America. He has offered a biblical critique of secular justice and critical theory, and I'd love for you to spend a little time reflecting on this. Yeah. For, well, first, thanks for having me, Carmen. As as usual, I'm uh, happy to be here. And uh, uh, Tim Keller is just a blessing. Uh, he he did an excellent uh, piece of work. I think it was last week uh, about you know a, a biblical critique, as you said, of secular justice and critical theory. And it's much needed because there's so much misunderstanding about what justice is, how you know biblical justice applies in a social context, and uh, how you know some of these other more secular theories have flaws, but also have things that we can pay attention to and that actually may fit into a biblical framework. And so I think he did a wonderful job. Uh, One of the things that, you know, he starts off by saying that really biblical justice is a product of dignity, right? Um, There there is human dignity and without an understanding of the value of people, it's hard to have a foundation for justice. And so he really deals with uh, rationalism and how the Enlightenment failed to show that rationalism really creates a foundation for justice. Now, you might be able to articulate justice, but you can't articulate it strictly from a secular foundation. There must be something more. I thought that was excellent. Uh, I'd also uh, comment on how he talked about corporate responsibility, right? He said that God sometimes holds families, groups, and nations corporately responsible for the sins of individuals. And we see that we see that over and over in the Bible, whether it's Daniel, uh, we see that in Joshua, and he makes mention of that. But he doesn't leave it there. He also talks about individual responsibility, that we are responsible for our sins, um, but not responsible necessarily for all the outcomes, right? Um, and so I, I just thought it was a very thoughtful way to talk about this. He wasn't necessarily on the attack, but he took the time to kind of draw different lines and let people know why biblical justice is actually um, more well-founded than all these other uh, more distorted uh, uh, portrayals of justice. 
Yeah, and from there, he goes into what I would just describe as, as like philosophy 101 in terms of how the way you look at the world um, produces your understanding of justice and then what justice is ultimately about. So is justice about freedom? Is it about fairness? Is it about happiness? Is it about power? Um, there's probably another answer to that question that's not even on um, on that sort of philosophical spectrum. Um, but I, I really felt like this was um, this was like course material. I could sit I could imagine myself sitting down with this piece by Keller over a number of weeks and having a conversation with another individual or with a small group of individuals um, because it almost it's it's it helps to have um, something objective that the two of us can talk about as opposed to. Um, you know, you and I always, um, you know, trying to imagine what the other person is, person is thinking or feeling or um, the ideas that they're operating out of. This is this. We can point to this and we can say, OK, well, let's look together at what Keller has said about, um, you know, biblical justice. And let's walk through these passages together and let's see what emerges and bubbles up or let's compare biblical justice to the alternatives that are offered by these other worldviews. I don't even think most people are thinking this way. Yeah, unfortunately, we're not. I think what happens too often is we find the version or the interpretation that fits our narrative the best, that makes us look the best, or that kind of absolves us, and we just run with it. Uh, I was saying the other day that, you know, any man-made ideology or concept or system has to go through biblical scrutiny. It has to be scrutinized. And too often when we find something we like, we get mad at other Christians for even uh, for, for for critiquing it. And we can't do that. Uh, if you have a theory that is not coming straight out of the Bible, it must be critiqued. And I think if you're not willing to critique it, I, I live by this. If somebody's not willing to critique their ideology or a system that they follow, then I have to assume that you've been indoctrinated. And, and I think Christians should feel that way. And so when you're coming with something that's an interpretation of something that may not be strictly biblical, that doesn't mean it's bad, it may not be strictly uh, coming straight out the Bible, then you have to show Christians that you're willing to critique it, or else I think it's a, a fair assumption to say that you may have been indoctrinated by it. All right, so Justin and I are both commending um, to you, there's actually three resources. The first one was posted a couple months ago. Um, these are all at gospelinlife.com. The first is called The Bible and Race. The second is The Sin of Racism. And this most recent one, A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. They're all by Tim Keller. You can find them all at gospelinlife.com. When we come back, Justin and I are going to talk about um, critiquing the, uh, the proposed platform of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, their convention is coming up. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign. Justin, let's talk about um, the proposed platform of the Democratic National Committee. It's posted online for people who want to read it at demconvention.com. Uh, the the convention is coming up. The platform will be voted on at that point. Um, why don't you give us a critique of what you're reading there? Yeah, so uh, it's not it's not a short document, uh, probably over uh, <laughs> fi- uh, 50 pages 
Uh, uh, but there's some good and there's, there's some bad. And then I'll kind of start with some of the things that I, I can appreciate. Now, I appreciate how it starts off with uh, a focus on protecting workers and families. Um, you know, the Democratic Party, I think, can do a better job of focusing on families and how, you know, families is, that is an institution that needs to be built. And so I was happy to see uh, that focus because we know a lot of workers uh, are going through tough times. And I think we are going to need to focus on how to get people back to work and how to make sure that that work fits in with a family life uh, and so that people can, you know, have healthy families along with making a wage that uh, that can help them support those families. And so I, I think I thought that was great. It was also a conversation about uh, combating poverty and how poverty plays into all of this. Uh, I think that's right. And I, I'm, I'm glad that that's in the platform. Also, I would say the voter rights uh, conversation, I think protecting voter rights, especially as an African-American, I know how important that is. Uh, I've talked to my grandparents about, you know, voting and, and how it didn't seem so accessible at times, but how important it was to make sure that there were no un, you know, undue obstacles to people voting. I, I, that is so important. And, and, and it bears saying over and over again, me and my son actually early today voted in the Georgia runoff. And I, I had a conversation with him about the importance of that. And so it, it talks about voting by mail, I think is going to be important for this election coming up, and also upgrades to uh, election technology. Uh, you know, some of the things that we see happen, and, and this happens in Georgia, too, with the technology, even if it's not anyone's fault, well, sometimes we got to make sure that we just do better with that. And hopefully we can come up with some technology that makes the um, process as transparent as possible. Some of the things I probably agreed less with, uh, I actually do support uh, basic civil rights for LGBTQ people. Uh, one of the things that I, one of the problems I have with the Democratic Party, though, is that they do that at the expense of religious liberty. And I think if they're more thoughtful about that conversation and have a higher value on religious liberty, they'll find that you can do both of those things without compromising uh, religious liberty. That's a conversation in the party that needs to happen. It's one that uh, you don't often is not it's a conversation that's not a, often allowed to happen or a debate that's not allowed to happen. And I think that's unfortunate. And then I would end with women women's health. I think uh, we can support women's health without dehumanizing the unborn. And this uh, platform just doesn't have any recognition of the unborn or value of the un unborn. And that's uh, just unfortunate. Yeah. And that would be the conversation, actually, that we had um, earlier today with Mark Caleb Smith, just in terms of um, that one point um, and and how influential then that one point becomes in the way um that people who oftentimes um, conservatives are accused of being one issue voters on this issue, on the issue of life. And yet, in reality, there are also those for whom this is the one issue, let's say, on the other side of the aisle, that they would only ever vote for or support um, a party or a candidate that is pro-choice. And by pro-choice, um, they mean something that is uh, – that goes a long, a long way down the road um, from the protection of uh, of every life, and so I do think that that particular part of um, of the party's platform um, is continues to be a really a, a great challenge for Christians who, you know, frankly, this year are looking for alternatives. Right? I mean, they're they are. It, this is a challenging time to apply the faith in the political conversations of the day. And so appreciate always um, how you go about doing that. Um, one of the things that stands out to me, Justin, uh, in uh, in the party platform 
that I thought was maybe worth lifting up uh, in case people don't see it. Um, I I am an advocate of this section that would say, you know, providing a world class education in every zip code. Um, why why are we still so um, far from this goal? That's a good question. I, I think there it, I think it depends. I think there's a variety of, of factors that play into it. But but we really have to I think one of the things is focusing on, you know, how family and, and even uh, resources play into this conversation. Uh, when you have, you know, even jobs, there's so much, so many things that play into education. Even housing plays into education. In, in my neighborhood, uh, if you go talk to the school's administrators, they'll tell you that a lot of their kids, if not most of their kids, are changing schools, you know, three, four times a year because they don't have uh, a stable housing. Right. And so the housing conversation, the housing crisis in urban areas plays a lot into it. And I think we we, we number one, just need to have an intellectually honest conversation that is outside and to some extent of these ideological bounds that we kind of have put on everything. I think people take their side. They, they decide what they think the issue is and they just run with it. But we're not hearing each other and we're not being innovative of, about how we approach it. Because, again, education is one of those things where there's a number of factors that plays into why our kids are learning or they aren't learning. We can't just blame it on the teachers. Uh, we can't just blame it on uh, uh, parents. We got to make sure that we're all working together and that we're we're prioritizing uh, the, the kids and, and making sure that they learn. All right. You want to take one minute and weigh in on the Veep stakes? Man, I don't I don't, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> I think you've seen that it's gotten ugly. Uh, and that uh, they're, they're fighting pretty hard. I, I would imagine that the decision will may, be made this week or next. I don't know who it's going to be. If I had to guess, uh, I think it looks like uh, uh, Kamala Harris, um, but I'm not sure. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see what happens, um, but I think she's definitely in the top two. So, um, yeah, I think that, first of all, isn't it, um, isn't it exciting that there are th- at least three very strong African-American women um, who uh, who are being looked at for this position. That that is a conversation in and of itself. Um, And so I want to celebrate that. I mean, I um, I mean, you know, I I don't get to pick, but um, but Susan Rice and Kamala Harris and uh, uh, and Karen Bass. I mean, I got to tell you the um, the contributions that each of them has made. Um, even if I don't agree with them on every political decision they've ever ever made, um, the demonstration of of their leadership and the quality of their leadership over time um, is I mean, you can't argue against it. So just uh, I just appreciate that they are being elevated in the conversation. And that's I, I find that pretty exciting. Yeah, it's hard to argue against their experience. They have a wealth of experience. Now, there's differences in. Uh, you know, how you may have think somebody performed if you or you agree with the policies that they've pushed forward. Uh, but experience, it certainly isn't the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And their willingness to sacrifice I mean, contributions made. I mean, on and on and on. All right, Justin, um, thank you, as always, for joining us. Always uh, a pleasure and a privilege. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Carmen. Thank you. That's Justin Gibney. You can find him at the dot com. We'll be right back. All right, next up, I've got David Schmoos. He is the president of the Christian Educators Association International. He is going to talk with us about conversations that faith leaders have been having uh, with Betsy DeVos. Um, 
And we're also going to talk about um, some survey findings among members of the Christian Educators Association uh, as they look at going back to school. All that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. Scripture employs an artillery of terms for love, each one calibrated to reach a different target. Consider the one Moses used with his followers in Deuteronomy 10:15. The Lord chose your ancestors as the objects of his love. What the Hebrews heard in their language was this, the Lord binds himself to his people. Binds is the word hasak, and it speaks of a tethered love, a love attached to something or someone harnessed. The strap serves two functions, yanking and claiming, like yanking your child out of trouble and in doing so to proclaim, yes, he is wild as a banshee, but he's mine. God chained himself to Israel because they were lovable? No, God loves Israel and the rest of us because he chooses to do so. God's love is the love that won't let go of the object of his love. This is Max Lucado. David Schmoose joins me again. He's the executive director of the Christian Educators Association International. You can find everything we're talking about today at CEAI, Christian Educators Association International, CEAI.org. David, welcome back. Hey, so good to be with you, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Wonderful to have you. You um, recently participated in uh, a call with Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos um, wondering if there are some things from that uh, call you might want to share with us. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, Betsy DeVos uh, certainly had a message uh, for teachers across this country uh, and schools and school officials. Uh, the message was she expects uh, us to open schools physically online, uh, you know, w- with, of course, reasonable exceptions that uh, she's not suggesting that there's a, there's an outbreak in your community or, uh, that you all rush back into school, but uh, saying, hey, we need a, a locally controlled but federally, su- federally supported response to COVID-19. And she pointed out that, you know, hey, there's issues, and I agree with this as well, there's issues with the whole child that need to be considered, you know, mental, emotional health, physical safety, academic, emotional development. Um, You know, in in our county, we're seeing uh, child abuse reportings drop by half, um, largely because there aren't aren't teachers in schools to, to find those kids. And so we know that, you know, abuse is probably still happening, but those kids aren't aren't being helped. And and there's so many reasons why it's it's just generally speaking uh, good for kids to be in school, uh, despite as believers. Uh, well, you know, I'm also appreciative that in some cases the sex ed curriculum in some states isn't being taught. You know, and the radical, uh, you know, transgender stuff isn't being taught. Uh, so there's a there's a silver lining here. But uh, generally speaking, uh, kids need to be in school, and and that's where that's where DeVos is coming from. So. Uh, but a lot of our states, of course, are not are not pursuing that option, and and in some cases that's wisdom. You know, COVID nineteen is a real thing, but uh, but we need to need to have wisdom and not fear in terms of our decisions about this. It's interesting that you talk about the kinds of curriculum that are not being taught when we're not in school, um, mm-hmm. as we as we have these um, online uh, and hybrid opportunities. Um, I was reading this week, David, um, of one teacher who was um, wanted to make sure that when his students were listening to his class and participating in his class, that they were doing so with headphones on so that their parents could not hear the content of his teaching. Oh, no. 
And I thought to oh. myself, now that um, that should be a clear indication that the things that you're teaching are not consistent with what you know are the values of of parents at home. Like I was stunned by just how honest the how honest the revelation was. Um, yeah, that was deeply disappointing. Yeah, there's a real value to have uh, to having Christians who are educators. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe just remind people what you guys do at the Christian Educators Association International. So if there are Christians who are engaged in education um, and they're listening right now, uh, but they're not engaged in what you guys are doing, they can they can better understand it. Absolutely. Yeah. The reasons you cited is exactly why we do what we do and that, you know, 90 percent of students in this country go to public schools and whether or not we that's the preferred option or not. I know many of us in the body of Christ would like to see uh, many more out of public schools. And I, I get that. Uh, but but the fact of the matter is, for many families, public school is the only choice. And and when you send those kids to public schools, uh, who's going to be their teacher? You know, what would happen if we were to raise up an army of, of missional public school teachers that would stand in the gap for these kids in these schools and would it would be a buffer between all these kind of things we hear in the media and, and, and we get concerned about, like the sex ed and like the like the, some of the radical leftist agenda. And we say, OK, what if there was a Christian in my my kid's school uh, being their teacher, you know, choosing what, what to include, what to not include in their curriculum to a great extent. Uh, and that's what we're after. We're, we're saying, hey, this is the most strategic mission field in their nation. And, and as I look around sort of the current, um, current lay of the land with, with COVID-19 and returning to schools, there's really two things that are concerning me greatly. One is you're seeing um, politicized teachers unions who are using uh, this opportunity, the leverage they may have regarding reopening schools to demand things in some cases that have nothing to do with COVID or even education. Uh, things like defunding the police or or uh, uh, millionaires or billionaires taxes or Medicare for all. Uh, they're demanding these things at a, at a time where they're really making political demands uh, using their leverage. And this has nothing to do with with our, our current crisis. And and uh, and I, I just think that's uh, using our, our kids as a political bargaining chip is immoral. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is teachers have other options. You know, we, one of the reasons we exist is to provide another option for teachers. They don't have to be a member of a politicized teachers union. They can join Christian Educators Association, get their liability insurance, their job protection coverage at uh, sometimes as much as a one fourth or one fifth of the cost of a teachers union, depending on your state um, and uh, for all from a biblical worldview. So so the so the first thing I'm seeing out there that really concerns me is that is is, is the politicized teachers unions using the situation. The second thing I'm seeing out there is just fear. Uh, we have so many teachers um, that are that are afraid, uh, and I understand that. You know, this is a this is a scary time, uh, and there's reasons to be afraid in some cases. But of course, the scriptures remind us we are not given a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind, and, and perfect love casts out fear. And if we step out of our lives in fear, if we focus on the things that can get us, um, that's not where the Lord would have us to be. And so, we're trying to encourage our teachers to step out in faith rather than fear. So I want to um, I want to continue and amplify that point that you just made about teachers unions. Um, I know that you recently on the CEAI Facebook page um, posted some responses and some resources just in specifically in relationship to the L.A. teachers union um, and their demand for defunding the police, a moratorium on charter schools, a millionaire tax, Medicare for all. Um, I like the way that you have framed framed this. I mean, they're essentially, you know, holding the school system and therefore kids hostage by saying, hey, we're not going to come back to work until and unless these other political demands are met that, as you say, um, are not directly related to the education and welfare of children. Right. 
And in, you know, it's not just in LA and in, in DC, the teachers unions is, is they're, they're laying fake body bags on the doors of the district office is, is indicating that, you know, basically you're killing us by sending us back to school. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the, these teachers unions don't really represent most teachers. And that's kind of the, the thing we're, we're seeing. Um, and so teachers have choices. They don't have to uh, give their money and their union dues to to these radical political organizations that somehow have come to represent teachers in our country. You know, teachers are most teachers are called to, to love kids and to serve kids. And, you know, if if. Uh, uh, for most teachers, and I realize there's some at high risk with the uh, compromised immune systems that are caring for people, and, and I totally understand that. But for most teachers, um, you know, we, we send workers to Target and to our restaurants that we eat at and and to retail stores and, and our, of course, our, our heroic healthcare workers. There, there's millions of us in this nation heroically going to work, and there's millions of teachers who have that same mentality who say, yeah, teaching is essential. Uh, I want to be with my kids and I want to be making a difference in their lives. But these unions, in some cases, are, are, are throwing out these roadblocks to, to get, you know, political uh, demands met. And, and it's just irresponsible. And I'm I'm very, very frustrated with it. If teachers go to uh, CEAI.org slash unions, that's CEAI.org slash unions, they can see um, some of the things that we're, we're saying out there about how unions do not represent most teachers and they have they do have options and they can exercise those options there. All right, we're going to be uh, praying for those who are teaching, um, praying prayers of salt and light, praying prayers for students and teachers and administrators um, alike. David Schmoose and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to um, talk about some of uh, the things that uh, that they are hearing, that the Christian Educators Association International is hearing from their members. They've done a really broad survey, and we've got some results of that to share. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. Give me Continuing my conversation with David Schmoose from the Christian Educators Association International. David, you guys have surveyed your members. What um, what have you learned about what, what folks maybe are concerned about in terms of returning to school, but then also what they're looking forward to? Sure, absolutely, Carmen. Yeah, we surveyed over 600 teachers from all 50 states. And uh, one thing that really struck out to me was, or stuck out to me was uh, two-thirds of the survey respondents were favorable towards returning physically to school. And, and that was really encouraging me to, for me to see that, that two-thirds of our, our members that we surveyed um, said, yeah, I, I want to go back to school. Um, now, we did separate our results in terms of sort of those who consider themselves at high risk or those who care for someone at high risk. That was about 40 percent of the respondents. So 40, about 20 percent saying, hey, I'm personally at high risk. 20% saying, I care for someone in my immediate family who's high risk. But but even that group, um, you know, only 37% of that group uh, were expressing very serious concerns about going back to school. In other words, the, the, the majority of that group also uh, was favorable towards returning to in-person schooling. And, and, you know, of course, as I said earlier, we get that if someone, an individual teacher, especially a member of ours who needs to to not go back to school, we will certainly uh, serve them and represent them. But but I'm encouraged to see that so many of them uh, really do want to be back in school. They know that's what they need to be. Um, some of the concerns they're looking at, especially those who are going to be teaching in a digital environment, um, they're concerned about motivating their students. Of course, we saw that last March uh, in April when uh, it was really difficult to get kids who wouldn't engage online to, to do their schooling and do their work and to engage in learning. And so that's still, of course, a high 
concern. Um, some are concerned uh, about just things like, hey, uh, what happens if there's a breakout and do I have to use my sick time? And, you know, this, you know, basic, mm. basic concerns like that. Um, but uh, one one of our teachers in a survey, and I think many teachers have called in about this as well, expressed, hey, how do I run my Christian club? You know, uh, many teachers, of course, uh, are sponsors, advisors for Christian clubs. And there's, of course, limited, uh, legally limited uh, roles they can play in that. But nonetheless, they can make sure the club exists and, and kind of keep it going. And But how do you do that in an online environment? for many of our teachers who are facing that. And so, um, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of concerns out there. Um, you know, one thing, one thing we saw actually that, that teachers aren't as concerned about, or at least aren't as concerned expressing that to us about, is that they're not as concerned about their, their classroom uh, cleaning protocols. I think they feel they, they kind of know how to do that. But they are concerned about, hey, how do I motivate kids? How do I teach them online? And they're also concerned about spiritual, emotional challenges, overcoming fear, isolation, uh, things like that. So uh, we're seeing a, a broad-based, um, you know, a variety of things. But overall, hey, teachers want to be back in school, and so I'm really encouraged by that. I think that in terms of the anxiety that um, I'm hearing expressed by other people, uh, like myself, who you know we're trying to get our kids ready to to go back to school. Um, one just returned yesterday for day one. The other uh, starts this Thursday for a half day of day one. Um, but you know they're we're being told right at the start, um, you know, there's every chance that, uh, you know, that we'll have to shut down and everybody will have to go back home. And, you know, the, the real challenge that <clears throat> that parents like me face is if kids are not in school, then there has to be a parent at home. And I mm-hmm. think for teachers, you know, the same thing is true. If um, if teachers have school age kids, they're facing, you know, a double challenge because they got to figure out how to get their kid online, in class, on time, you know, and and they have to be online doing the teaching. Um, and I just know that at least where I live, we don't have the, that kind of Internet capacity. We can't both be online on a Zoom call at the same time. So either, I mean, either I'm doing my job as an educator, right? I mean, not that I am one, but you get my point, right? Or yes, my kid is going to the class they're supposed to be in, but both cannot be simultaneously true. Um, yeah, and, it's it's so challenging. Yeah, a huge challenge. And in fact, we actually asked our survey respondents, uh, do you have school-age children at home or not? And we can filter, of course, results based on their response. And we found that those who have school-age children at home were slightly more likely, it wasn't huge, but slightly more likely to prefer a return to in-person schooling. And I think that's part of the issue. Their life becomes so much more complex if their kids aren't in school uh, as well. In fact, one of our teachers uh, said, uh, I am being told my own children may not be allowed in the building after school or if we move to all online instruction. I am not sure how I'm going to take care of my own children. Uh, yeah, and that's that's a huge concern out there for our teachers with with those school age children. Um, you know, but one one thing I'm I'm also encouraged about with this survey is one the question that we asked is, uh, hey, what opportunities do you see for God's will to be done in the midst of this challenge? Um, and we got some really encouraging uh, responses uh, to that. Um, I, I, one, one teacher said, I see an opportunity for Christians to show the world how and why we trust that God has a situation through positivity, through positivity and encouragement, but not through naive ignorance of the real medical and health risks of this pandemic. It's a fine line. So yeah, there's that fine line between, hey, how do we show faith and not fear, and yet how we show wisdom in, in response to uh, you know, the real needs and, and the real health, this real health crisis. And another, another person just said, hey, I'm witnessing more. 
Uh, and that's really encouraging. Another teacher pointed out that, hey, people are asking people are asking bigger questions, right? There, this this concern about death and, and being sick has brought up eternal issues in hearts. And so teachers have opportunities with colleagues and and with parents and and in some cases with students, um, respecting legal boundaries, of course, uh, to be that example and that salt and light in this crisis. But if you're if we're all kept at home doing online, we can still do it a little bit through the you know through Zoom and all that. But it's wow, much more effective when you're in person. And so our teachers generally want to get back do that it's uh i mean I, i'm praying ardently because i think every every teacher every kid every classroom every campus every administrator i mean i you know again we all have our own experiences of what's happening in our own school districts or um or with our own private schools and and we're just recognizing it's really hard i mean I, we thought we were getting a lot of emails before uh, it's it's now like totally overwhelming. And um, my heart goes out to families for whom English is not a first language. My heart mm. goes out to, you know, people who don't have enough ink in their printer to print out all of these documents that I'm supposed to, yes. you know, print out and sign and return before I can get the laptop that's going to be issued. And, you know, I better show up with my insurance money. I mean, I just I just think about all of the things that were already hard for a lot of people and how many new stumbling blocks there are to their child um, achieving academic success. And, yeah. um, yeah, it's yeah, just, you it's so hard. Kids, you think about the kids with, uh, special ed issues, you know, uh, and the parents of those kids, you know, who, for whom, uh, schooling is for many of those parents, their only, uh, a way that they can really meet or, or the primary way they can meet their kids needs and, and their, their high academic needs or high needs for, uh, direct care and direct addressing of these special ed issues, special ed issues. And then so not only are those kids losing that and that help and that instruction, but now you're putting them at home and they're, as you said earlier, parents have to work. And now I've got a high needs, you know, uh, special ed kid uh, with me uh, during the day all the time. Um, and of course, God can work in that and God can restore family relationships. And we're seeing some of that as well. So there's there's always a way God redeems these situations. But but in many families uh, that presents an absolute crisis. Uh, and so, yeah, this is a this is a very, very challenging issue. And so more and more reason why we need, uh, you know, Christian people of sincere faith to step up and, and, and serve in our public schools. I mean, I am really trying to ask churches, hey, consider that public school down the street a, a mission field and consider sending your people uh, to serve in that school. Uh, as witnesses and as people who can love kids unconditionally and as uh, people who will represent Christ and his sacrificial love. And, and that's a hard ask. Uh, but but this, these are hard times. And that, that sure, I'm asking their church to rise up and, and, and take this on and, and, uh, and trust the Lord that he has a plan for our kids in public schools. Absolutely. David Schmoos, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to uh, direct those who are interested to check out what is going on at the Christian Educators Association International, CEAI.org. Hey, David, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right. Uh, no, you're not alone. If you are wondering how you or your church can, uh, can help out, uh, that is actually the substance of the conversation that I had last week with Pastor Daryl Crouch. If you want to Go back and grab that podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. We also talked about a piece posted at TheGospelCoalition.org. Millions of kids won't be at school this fall. Christians can step up to serve. Some ideas there for uh, the ways in which you might help. All right, we started this hour talking about Second Mile Love. I just wanted to, uh, to highlight a teacher who is literally walking the second mile 
every single day. He is making and then delivering by walking seven, seven miles every day, delivering homemade lunches to students in need. So there is a, day, a way to walk out your faith, and that second mile is the smile mile. Let's not forget that. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.